Welcome to Marvel Us Disney. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. I'm entertainer writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this episode on Monday, July 8th, 2019. So, how was your fourth, Aaron? What did, what did you and your bride do? Uh, the neighbors were shooting off some massive fireworks, and I decided, hey, I'm going to go record some explosive shells up close, and nothing bad happened. Nobody lost any fingers or anything like that, but I did spend about a good hour recording some incredible sound only to come in to find out that my memory card was locked and did not record anything. <laughs> but it was a nice time seeing all the fireworks up close. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> Sorry about the tech issues. But yeah, that's definitely an interesting way to, to have spent the holiday. Yeah. Speaking of explosives, Spider-Man Far From Home blew up the box office this past weekend. Given that the film actually started showing on Tuesday, July 2nd, and then that's a ridiculously long holiday weekend because that, that then ran till what? Sunday, July 7th? Right. Under those sorts of conditions, the fact that this John Watts movie made $185 million during its first weekend in theaters, I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. But do you talk with the folks at Columbia Pictures? They're quick to point out, it's like, look, $185 million, Spider-Man Homecoming, when it was released to theaters back in July of 2017, only made $134 million total during its entire domestic run which was lasted 21 weeks and didn't really end till November 30th of that year. So the fact that Far From Home has already pulled in more than half what Homecoming did in North America, that's making Kevin Feige and the folks at Columbia very, very happy. There was some concern on the other side of Avengers Endgame that some franchise fatigue might kick in, especially on the heels of how Dark Phoenix did. Well, maybe for Dark Phoenix, because it was their second attempt at the well through Fox, but that wasn't an MCU thing. That was, you know, I mean, I, I have to say that the MCU should kind of be cleaved off from the rest of the superhero genre and just set off by itself as the MCU, a cohesive mm -hmm. whole that mm -hmm. you really have a hard time splitting apart now into little individual chunks. So some movies may look appealing in advertising, but for whatever reason, the audience doesn't turn out for it. And then mm. it doesn't make the bank that they expected it to. And all of a sudden they go, what did we do wrong? And it seems mm. like so far everything in the MCU, the audience is giving it a goodwill test try. Even if they're not familiar with the characters or the story that, they're, that Marvel is going in, people are still showing up to see you know, how it connects to everything else and what's up with the talking raccoon and tree thing. And, you know, that shouldn't make sense, but people ate it up. So, okay. you know, you kind of have to almost separate the two as being different things. As far as fatigue from superheroes, I'm kind of hoping that Marvel ends up tweaking the formula a bit more in the future. Mm -hmm. So instead of it being like a straight, you know, superhero genre in, in the way that Captain America was almost a World War II film, I want him to go more in those different directions where it doesn't have quite the MCU gloss. You know, I, I mean, want them to do something very, very unique and very, very different. I think Legion has been a great example, even though it's not in the MCU. I think that's a great example of going way crazy in a unique direction that still works for superheroes. 
So I'm just hoping that Marvel, because they don't want to ever be stale, starts stepping into even more unique and risque territories that they haven't been in yet to keep things fresh. Kevin Feige and, and the group have been out there doing press associated with Spider-Man Far From Home. The very thing you were just talking about. For example, somebody would ask Kevin about how long does it take to develop each phase of the MC, uh, MCU. And what Kevin said in response is, it's, it's about five years. There's always changes to it. We always alter a little bit from the course, but setting a five-year path has been very beneficial to us in the, the beginning. And Kevin said, we've been working on phase four for the past four years. And as we're producing these films, we've been developing and planning the next group of films and looking to continue to surprise fans and bring characters to the screen that are very different from any characters before that people, unless they're really, really hardcore fans, may have never heard of. Which kind of brings us to the multiverse. And if you haven't yet seen Spider-Man Far From Home, the multiverse does factor into the story and... Aaron and I are about to talk about a key story point of the movie. So if you don't want it to be spoiled, maybe jump ahead in the podcast about five minutes. Uh, assuming you're still listening. In the Spider-Man Far From Home, we have Mysterio talking about how during the blip, he crossed over from Earth. Ugh, I'm blanking it, Aaron. Which which Earth is it again? He says that we are in Earth 616, which is an accurate We're fact that had already been stated by Dr. Selvig in mm -hmm. Thor Dark World. Okay. So the whole factoid that he knows that this is the Earth 616 does mm -hmm. actually, in fact, signify that there is still a multiverse, even though he himself has not come from one. You see, that's the thing, that, that over the course of this movie, Mysterio is exposed as a fraud. And so someone asked John Waters, so does that mean the multiverse is, is a fraud? He said, we never say it's not real. Mysterio's take on it is certainly bold, but that doesn't mean that a multiverse doesn't exist, especially after the things that we saw happen in Endgame with different timelines. More interesting is what Kevin Feige had to say about this. I mean, again, Kevin, it's Kevin's Kevin. You know, he always likes to keep his cards close to his vest and doesn't want to tip his hand too much about what's coming. But he was quick to point out that in spite of Mysterio's bogus origin story, this is the second time we've heard tell of the multiverse in the MCU. The first time was Tilda Swanson's character, the ancient one of Doctor Strange, and she's a much more trustworthy source. So take that into consideration and hope going forward that's how this pans out. Well, I think this is also Marvel kind of nudging everybody to the realization that a multiverse could happen. It's out there, mm -hmm. the idea's been floated, now, mm -hmm. if we decide to do something crazy in a couple of years from now and actually incorporate it, people won't go, hey, what the heck is this out of left field? They'll have gone, oh, is that the multiverse that they've been hinting at? Oh, it's been part of the grand plan all along. They're so wise. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, before I forget, folks, we, we use the term the blip, and then that's the same term that they used in Spider-Man Far From Home to explain the, the five-year gap the fans last year on the heels of Avengers Infinity War. They were the ones who named the moment where Thanos snapped his fingers in Wakanda and effectively eliminated half of the living things in the universe. 
I will always choose to call it the snappening, but that's just my preference. Go ahead, oh, please. Oh, that's so much better. <laughs> oh, we got to make that happen. It turns out there's this wonderful article in the most recent issue of Cinefix Magazine, just published, uh, issue number 65. It's uh, Jody Duncan has written about the production of Endgame in a story called Hero's Journey. And... As part of the story, she quotes FX supervisor Florian Gellinger. In fact, he uses, for example, the scene at the start of Avengers Endgame where we see Hawkeye teaching his daughter archery as, as Clint's wife is off making a picnic. And this is what he says. The look of the blips, as the crew called them, uh, had been established in Infinity Wars. This time, said FX uh, supervisor Florian Gellinger, whose team delivered the opening sequence blips. The effect was simpler in that you don't actually see the characters dissolve. It all happens off screen and you see the residual dust flakes. It's only somebody who could see the movie who would call it the snap because we actually saw the moment on screen of the Mad Titan snapping his fingers and everyone going to dust. Whereas if you were out in that world, living in that world, you would have called it something like the blip because it literally one, you know, from one moment there were all these people here and then bang, the next minute, half of them are gone. Actually, I think in that world, they would have called it that great day that Swiffer stock went up a billion percent. <laughs> oh. Oh. Heavy cleanup on aisle seven. <laughs> oh. you, know, you know, I'm honestly surprised given all of Disney's cross-promotional partners. <laughs> why somebody didn't go for that. That's, that's funny. Oh, uh, speaking of this issue of Cinefix, which I highly recommend you folks pick up, Remember how when the initial trailer for Infinity War uh, came out and there was that shot in Wakanda and it's what Captain America and Bucky and Black Widow and I want to say Black Panther running toward the camera with like the army of Wakanda behind them. But in that same shot is a CG version of the Hulk. Right. Anybody who knows, you know, who saw the Infinity War movie knows that Hulk was still dealing with his issues to that point and never was in that scene. But it turns out that the promotions team at Disney and Marvel Studios decided, because they didn't want to give away that story point, they'd create the shot that had the Hulk in it. And they did the exact same thing with the trailer for Endgame. Uh, you may remember the first pass on that had Tony on the, the Benatar basically dead in space and he was using his helmet to record a goodbye message to Pepper Potts, but he's looking relatively healthy. He's just, he's... Wasn't, wasn't he just kind of banged up and bruised like he just came from the battle with Thanos? That's it exactly. Healthy is probably not the right term. But when you, you saw the finished film, here is this gaunt Tony Stark with bags under his eyes and his skin sallow and that sort of thing. And as for the difference between... You know, the scene in the as the scene is, was depicted in the trailer, the scene depicted in the film. Again, from Jody Duncan's article, a security was tight on this production as the studio and filmmakers attempted to keep plot points a secret. Toward that end, the Endgame trailer featured a far less emaciated version of Iron Man. One of the other things I really enjoyed about this article is that it actually explains some of the stuff that we saw in the movie. Do you remember that shot, Aaron, of... The Statue of Liberty and all those boats tied up around Liberty Island. Yeah, what were they there for? If half the people in the world disappeared, that meant half 
the captains of those boats and half of the crews disappeared. And in order to keep the Hudson operating, all of these extra boats had to be tied up somewhere. This is the parking lot for, you know, all of these crewless boats and crewless barges just to get them off the waterway so the city can sort of get back to work. Couldn't they just keep them in their boat slips where they were normally stored on a normal day? They talk about uh, in this article the ferries that run back and forth across the Hudson, taking people from Jersey to New York City and the like. For a boat to come in, another boat has to clear out. And so this was the notion of, you know, getting the boats out of position so other boats could get in. And so it's just clearing the extra traffic off the river. And the other thing that's worth noting is that the flyover of City Field, the, the home of the Mets in Queens, all those cars in the parking lot and out on the field, this is actually where all of the driverless cars that were left in New York City that were left in the streets got towed to and dumped. When they went to shoot the background plates for this sequence, so for the flyover, the Statue of Liberty, or the, the Brooklyn Bridge, the, the morning they picked, they got so lucky. It was so gray, so dark, and the city was fogged in. It was like the city was actually auditioning for the scene <laughs> of the blip. Let me look as miserable as possible. Now, mind you, the effects team then had to go in and erase loads of traffic and people who were actually out at that time of day. Now, as we're talking about Endgame, the re-release of the movie had its second weekend this past weekend, and it managed to pull in on an additional $3.1 million domestically, Aaron. Now, that brings a box office total to $2,772,400,000 in ticket sales. That's worldwide. Avatar, thanks to various re-releases over the past 10 years, has sold a total of 2,787,900,000 worth of tickets. So right now, Aaron, only $15,500,000 currently separates the number two all-time worldwide top box office film from the number one. I actually had somebody from Disney reach out and explain that just because the Blu-ray, you know, or for example, the digital version of Endgame comes on sale July 30th, mm-hmm. and then the Blu-ray and the DVD come out or, or hit store shelves uh, two weeks later. And what th- this individual in the studio pointed out said, look, if you take a look at the exact same period from uh, when the digital version of Infinity Wars became available, and likewise, again, two weeks later, the Blu-ray and DVD of this Russo Brothers movie hit store shelves. That movie, because of dollar theaters, because of drive-ins, it still managed to sell $3.9 million worth of tickets. The way Disney's working the math, and they're right now patiently waiting for the, the box office numbers for the second weekend, International, because the very first week that Endgame was re-released overseas, it made $2.6 million. They figured out that probably by the time all of this is said and done at the the end of September, Endgame is still going to be about $7.5 million short of Avatar's all-time worldwide box office number. So they're talking about making one more push this fall to try to move Endgame 
across the goal line. If someone were to, say, put Infinity War and Endgame back into theaters as a double feature, mind you, a double feature with a 10-minute long bathroom break in between the two films. Right, yeah. And if, along with your ticket, you were given a T-shirt that showed that you had experienced this once-in-a-lifetime, both films back-to-back, back in theaters for a limited time, would that be enough to pony up for, say, a $15 ticket? For me, no, because I've already got them on digital and Blu-ray, and I've watched them a dozen times in between here and there. And I mean, you could hand me the Infinity Gauntlet itself, and I'd be like, nah, <laughs> i got stuff to do, man. I'm kind of busy to give up that much time of my life for those two movies. They're great movies. I love them, but... No, I don't. I don't need to pay for them again. I mean, I've already seen them both in theaters, paid the money, purchased the home releases. So, how many times must I contribute to this particular coffer? That, now, that is true. If Disney that wants to true. start handing out bags of cash with each ticket because it's no longer about profit, but it's all about pride now, yeah, I might go. If they're willing to give me like fifty dollars to buy a fifteen dollar ticket, sure, I'll donate my time for that. But you know, right now, no, I, I don't think I would. You pretty much nailed it. At this point, this is really about box office bragging rights. Right. But there are folks at Marvel Studios who really want this particular bragging right. That at one point they were also talking about have the Russo brothers literally appear by live simulcast that you, you could go to a screening of Engram and have the Russo brothers talking about, you know, how this movie came together. But again, I'm, that's, I'm telling you, Jim, they're only hours away from calling Chris Hemsworth to go grab a, a can of film and a projector and just go door to door like five dollars to watch personally with Thor. Right. <laughs> and Nancy would go for that. I'm sure so. I'm sure it would sell. I, they would definitely get over their their hump, so to speak. But mm-hmm. uh, Chris would also be booked for the next 10 years to a, a throng of women who are eager to watch that movie one more time for some strange reason. Their boyfriend's not as much geeked about it, but the, the wives certainly are for watching Endgame one more time. Okay, folks. Well, anyway, that's our, our, our talk about Endgame for this show, but when we come back for commercial break, Aaron and I are going to take a closer look at Spider-Man Far From Home. Before we get started here, Aaron... You're about to introduce a, a brand new feature here at uh, the Marvelous Disney Podcast, something you've been, been tinkering on in your, your home studio. Can you talk a little bit about it? Oh, sure. It's it's a real quick gag. It's only going to take a couple of seconds. But, you know, Marvel has been doing so, so well with everything they've done. I wanted to just have a little fun, make a little joke, a little ha-ha moment. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a prediction in the future, really, really far in the future, because Phase 4 is just way too easy. So we're going to jump way past that and predict something crazy from the wild future. And unfortunately, in this multiverse this version of marvel isn't quite hitting on all cylinders so uh here we go with our inaugural edition time for a marvelous prediction from the future marvel perceiving that they can do no wrong spends 792 million dollars on a howard the duck reboot since nobody at the company has actually seen the original movie, everyone was shocked to discover that they had spent all of that time and money to produce a shot-for-shot remake of the film from 1986. In the digital and Blu-ray release, Disney will add a five-second clip that features the Tesseract, 
and the movie will end up making its money back on home video as a result. I would actually pay to go to to a, a shot for shot Howard the Duck. Did did you ever see that shot for shot version of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark that they did? Yeah, the young kids that recreated yeah. that. Actually, there's something on. I want to say it's Studio One Eight Two. Mm-hmm. They're doing it's it's a little YouTube channel, and I may have the name wrong, so I'll have to fix it in the edit if I screwed it up. But anyway, they're doing budget remakes of big films so like they'll do a trailer of lord of the rings and they'll show the original on the bottom half of the screen and on the top is their budget remake and so like if a warrior in lord of the rings is wearing a helmet they'll have carved out a watermelon and just placed it on top of their head (laughs) because that's the budget but the thing is they frame the shot correctly that you get exactly what they're trying to do with this low budget thing and it is the funniest thing my wife and i spent like a good 20 minutes just watching uh different movies that they do like they do one for the matrix and you know all all the popular movies that us nerds love they do a budget version it's hysterical so check those guys out and i was wrong it's studio 188 people so liked your review last week aaron of Spider-Man Far From Home, I thought we'd circle back on certain aspects of the film that we didn't necessarily touch on, but I thought we could do some deeper dives on. But but again, folks, if you haven't seen this John Watts film yet, we're going to get into the specifics. So I apologize in advance, but we are plunging ahead here. So let's start with Spider-Man's identity being revealed, or more to the point how, if you think about it, the original Iron Man back in 2008, literally ends with that beat i'm iron man and the movie ends that was the start of the infinity saga and this film was supposed to be the end of the infinity saga yeah so it's a nice bookend in that way right so how did you feel about them stopping on that note I was surprised. I liked how it also called back to the original uh, Spider-Man Homecoming where it ended with Aunt May's exclamation of, you know, how she (laughs) found out. So it bookended nicely in that way as well. The idea that Peter's identity is revealed could lead to a lot of fun of Flash always razzing him about being a Mm -hmm. dork, but he's got Spider-Man worship. Now what's going to happen with Flash when he knows that Peter, who he's been razzing this whole time, is actually Spider-Man? It's going to change that dynamic and add some humor to it, I'm certain. And then you've also got the many, many villains. And of course, all the villains end up finding out Peter's identity. This just gives them a quick way to get right to it. You know, now we can have a a battle take place because they showed up at Aunt May's house, rung the doorbell, Peter opens up the door, and fists start flying. Tom Holland, when he was asked about what just happened in uh, Spider-Man Far From Home, he he kind of said, look, if you blew up London's Tower Bridge, you would be the most wanted human being on the planet. And we all love Peter Parker, and he's such a sweet guy. It's really exciting to see what happens when every single government in the world wants him dead. And this is what I like about you, Aaron. You know the comic book so well, and it's the notion of if you're going to be hunting Spider-Man, who would you turn to in this comic book's gallery of rogues? Raven the Hunter. He's kind of, or at least in the classic 
comic book sense. Yeah. He's kind of problematic, isn't he? Today he is. Back then it was just a thing. Mm -hmm. He's a big game hunter. He kills one of every species to prove that he is the ultimate hunter. In today's society, people would boo that. And if you look at his costume, it's a lion's head split down the middle. It's got an eyeball over each nipple and the mane of hair from the lion's head goes over his shoulders and down his back. I mean, he literally split a lion's head in twain and then put it on and said, yeah, this looks cool. So, yeah, I think that there would be some problems if you were to just straight up bring out Craven the Hunter today. He's the anti-Steve Irwin of the mm -hmm. world. So uh, in when Marvel decided to bring him back in the ultimate line of the comic books in the early 2000s, he was more of a reality TV star who was still a big game hunter. And then when he found out that Peter Parker was Spider-Man, or he found out that there was such a thing as a Spider-Man. There's that old saying of, you know, man is the most dangerous game. And mm -hmm. uh, so he decides he's going to go hunt this man who has the ability of the spiders, and it will be his greatest kill ever. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, what kind of psychopath finds out about a person that has special abilities and goes, oh, I must kill them and mount their head on my wall like a trophy? That's pretty sick. So, yeah, by today's standards, it's, it's just not quite working. So they might have to retool him or they could just go headlong into that whole vibe and go, what a bad guy he is. He's wearing a lion's head for a coat and people mm -hmm. can just boo and jeer him because he's just he's like that bad wrestler that everyone mm -hmm. boos as they come out the ring. The guy that you love to hate. He could be that. Now, it, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, how. The challenges of dating, you know, a, a character like Craven the Hunter. Because face it, they had to do kind of the same thing with Mysterio. Sure. In, in fact, there's a this wonderful quote by John Watts about when they settled on Mysterio. There were a number of reasons they went that road. Here's what John had to say. That, that I always felt like comic book fans would know what was going on with Mysterio. So half the audience was going to be suspicious the whole time they were watching Far From Home. But my hope was the other half of the audience just might buy the con. But that said, I didn't want it to be a late third act reveal like we did in Homecoming. I thought it would be really interesting to have the movie essentially split in half with... The first half being this completely fake adventure story about Mysterio traveling from another dimension to fight the elementals. It, it's just completely fake, and I wanted to tell it and then end it right at the 60-minute mark and reveal that it was all an elaborate con. Yes, you know, in the audience, I was that first part that knew straight up, Mysterio's not a good guy, so let's just get to it. And, you know, that's kind of where I was, I don't want to say hoping for more. I mean, I enjoyed the first half. I was just waiting, waiting, waiting for the second half to start. And it mm -hmm. turns out that my gut feeling was right. He split the movie right in half and mm -hmm. laid out the con. And I thought nobody would ever buy this. How can you fall for that? And then I got a tweet from one of our listeners who said, I was totally in that group that thought Mysterio was the next Tony Stark until he wasn't. And I was like, holy mm -hmm. cow, it did, it did work for people. So good. I was happy that those people who weren't fans got a different kind of ride, but they still enjoyed it. It still gave them that pulling the rug out from under you that the director was hoping for because mm -hmm. in my mind that would just never ever work i couldn't believe that you know they would believe that mysterio's a good guy for even a second so i'm really really happy that that part of the magic trick was successful for the people who weren't familiar with the comics as deeply as i am for particularly spider-man 
Now, it, it's interesting you use the term magic trick, because the original backstory for Mysterio is, what, he was a movie stuntman, and he used tricks that he learned while working in the film industry uh, to keep Spidey off balance. So right. we're talking smoke bombs and springs in his shoes. And Mirrors building and a, elaborate that. sets, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. It was all an illusion, and you'd pull back the curtain and realize it was all made of duct tape and, and bubble gum. This version of Mysterio... Rather than magic, face it, which is you know Doctor Strange domain, and, right. and the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a very distinct take on magic. Mm -hmm. This version of Mysterio, you know, his the illusions that he used were all science based. So we're talking artificial reality, we're talking holographic projectors, but that is plausible within the story framework because. You're dealing with a bunch of disgruntled former Stark employees, right? Yeah, I mean, they invented the tech, and so they had their vision of how they wanted to use it, and Tony ended up using it for his own personal therapy session and mm -hmm. renamed it something that Mysterio didn't like and all that, and he wanted to reclaim mm -hmm. his tech and, you know, use it to manipulate people into thinking he was one of the greatest heroes of all time. What would happen mm -hmm. if an actual disaster happened to come along? And they're like, Mysterio, we need your help. And he's like, uh, 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 <laughs> he does I have no real power. It was all an illusion. What do I do? But uh, mm. be besides that little, yeah, I mean, everything that he did was close enough to the comic book because he had that motion capture suit that still mm. kind of had its roots in movie magic. And mm -hmm. the bubble over the head that would, you know, he had the cameras in there that would grab his face images, and then he had the microphone and the heads-up display and all that, so it kind of explained why he's got a bubble over his head. And all these really interesting little ways that they explained his real-world look I really enjoyed quite a bit. Now, speaking of which, during your review last week, you talked about how much you you enjoyed the, what, you called it the 20-minute sort of freak-out scene, right? Where you, you got to see... Basically, Mysterio had trapped Spider-Man in artificial reality and just kept hammering him with images. Yeah. But the filmmakers actually admitted that they wanted to do this right as they literally went back through every comic book that had a battle with Mysterio and Spider-Man and looked for key images, for, for things that's like, oh, we have to reproduce that. And they basically built a Mysterio's greatest hit sequence. Like that bit where uh, Mysterio's head turns into a snow globe and Spider-Man's trapped in it in the city of New York. And it, oh my goodness, that, I think that was a cover of one of them. And yeah, it was beautiful artwork and it came to life and it had breath and life. And I was so, mm -hmm. so happy because it was Mysterio's greatest hits. Almost every single bit during those moments on screen were pulled directly from the comics. And it was the same feeling when I saw Doctor Strange going into his otherworldly places it just those mm. images coming to life for the first time on screen that's the the magic moment that really makes the marvel movies especially for the older fans because they're they're doing their research of of the original artwork and all of that that yeah mm. that the uh, the older fans can feel like they're slipping into a comfy pair of slippers again and sitting down by the fire, it's it's home for us. And the new fans can see it for the first time and go, what up, yo, that was just crazy. <laughs> and, you know, then they can be reintroduced to that, that comic cover and go, oh, that was in the movie. And they'll buy that comic and they'll read it and go, it's a totally different adventure, but it was so cool. Yeah, uh, just happy, happy, happy. It's one thing to propose this and plan it and design it, but you need somebody to pull it off. And that's the thing that the filmmakers to a man just talked about the fact that 
they were so lucky to get Jake Gyllenhaal to play Mysterio because that whole could be the next Tony Stark thing he could do. He could be sincere. Peter Parker's a pretty sharp kid. And for him to be taken in by this con, you had to have a pretty masterful con man. Here's a little thing that may add to the reason why they cast Jake Gyllenhaal for this specifically. Mm-hmm. Do you remember back after Spider-Man 2 of the Sam Raimi variety, Tobey Maguire had injured his back and they were talking about the possibility that if he couldn't get better, they might recast him. And they actually mm-hmm. spoke to Jake Gyllenhaal to possibly be Spider-Man for Spider-Man 3. You are right. I that, that I remember those stories. Holy cow, you're right. Yeah, okay. so to bring him in to be Spidey's buddy, his mentor, it's kind of like pulling back from the old catalog of, who, who could we look at? And they go, you remember that one time we almost cast this guy as Spider-Man? Wouldn't it be cool to bring him in? Well, now, speaking of the Sam Raimi films, and it's, it's so fun that people, even a week after this thing has been released in theaters, are still talking about... J.K. Simmons returned as J. Jonah Jameson. And the filmmakers now can, you know, now that it's out, they can talk about how they got him. When the idea of bookending Far From Home with Iron Man came up, the initial thought was, okay, so how does Spider-Man's secret identity get revealed? You know, Tony Stark did it himself. Whereas Peter Parker has the worst luck in the world. Right. So just it made sense that someone else would do this to him. This is John Watts's talk about that moment in the movie's development. He said, when we initially talked about how Spider-Man's secret identity would be revealed, the Daily Bugle came up. And it it wasn't even a question, honestly. It was like, well, if we're going to do the Daily Bugle, it's got to be J. Jonah Jameson. And that has to be J.K. Simmons. It, It wasn't even a conversation. It was like, yep. Everyone's total agreement. Okay, let's do this. And uh, now, mind you, there was always a chance he would say no. And I think initially J.K. was a little weirded out, like, what are you guys doing? Don't you realize these are different movies? But he was definitely, uh, I think, a little confused at the beginning. But when we pitched in the story and he saw how he would fit into it, he was really excited. And it's such an iconic performance. So for J.K. to to step back into it, for me personally, as a huge fan of the Raimi films, to watch him bring the character back to life was so great that I actually ruined the first take because I was laughing. I love that that's how John Watts remembers bringing him in. Now, interestingly, before J. Jonah Jameson could be brought back onto the canvas and J.K. Simmons could then bring the character back to, or bring the character to life in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Kevin Feige insisted that they had to reimagine the character, largely because the old-fashioned newspaper editor that J. Jonah Jameson used to be in the comics, that's a really romanticized version of the news media that just doesn't exist anymore. In the Ultimates, uh, there is the Daily Bugle website. So the thinking was to change Jonah into an Alex Jones-like journalist who'd scream into the, the camera just seemed like that would work in today's media landscape. And again, this is Feige. I just, I love that it's the dailybugle.net and Jay Jonah is almost like a shock jock. It's such a fun evolution of the character. You know, the funny thing is that the fictional Daily Bugle was more quick Mm -hmm. to adopt online journalism than most actual print journalism was at that time. (laughs) Tell me about it. I started writing for the net in 1998, in fact, the very th- first thing I wrote 
was a review of Michael Eisner's uh, biography, Work in Progress. Was that back in the day of news groups where you had to sign up for news groups? This was just a little bit past that. Oh, okay. it, you know, I, in fact, I did that back in the late 80s or thereabouts. But it's been tough watching friends who work for traditional magazines, who work for traditional newspapers. In fact, just this past week, the news about MAD, you know, going from being right. a, a monthly publication to just publishing annuals and best of issues, it kind of breaks my heart. By the way, uh, getting back to Far From Home, both Feige and Watts did caution that while they got J.K. Simmons to come back and do J. Jonah Jameson for that mid credit sequence, that doesn't necessarily mean that the character will have a sizable role in a, a third Tom Holland starring Spider-Man film. But that said, Aaron, I think you actually solved the problem. Just have J. Jonah, you know, put the... You know, the price on his head. Yeah, I mean, he's only got to show up on a, a little TV news clip there for 30 seconds going, I want Spider-Man's head. I want $50,000 of the first person to bring me Spider-Man. And then, yeah, they go from there and he's done. He, he collects his check for that that little bit of work. Okay. And again, I want this noted by Marvel Studio. It's Aaron who proposed Craven the Hunter bring, and the way to bring in J. Jonah Jameson. So please send that check to Aaron Adams, care of jimmelmedia.com. <laughs> Oh, before I forget, last week you recommended this. It's actually called the script book. Yeah. For Good Omens. Yes. Yeah. I picked that up in the past week, and oh, you're right. That is such a fun read. Yeah. And really, if you're a Neil Gaiman or a, a Terry Pratchett fan, you have to pick this up, folks. Up, folks. If, if only because of, you know, half the fun is the, the little asides or mm -hmm. the, the slight differences from the, the finished product. Yeah, it's so. a, it is a very fun read to rediscover it all over again with fresh new eyes, with a little insight from the creator is always fun. Okay, folks, I want to remind you, we have a bunch of other podcasts here at Jim Hill Media. We have uh, The Disney Dish with Len Testo. We have Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor. We have Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Zahir. We have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. And I want that with Michelle Valladolid. Please head over to iTunes and rate and recommend the show. Head over to Bandcamp and subscribe. We're doing some Bandcamp-only material. In fact, Len just told a really funny story about how his apartment celebration got condemned. And, but you can only hear that if you're a Bandcamp subscriber. So on behalf of Mr. Adams, thanks for listening. And we'll be back soon with a brand new show. More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.